Well, it is a joy to be here with you. I realize that I have been at Foothill Bible Church multiple times and never on a Sunday morning. So thank you for uh, having me, inviting me. I and our whole church has a deep affection for your church. Yeah, even if we've never met, like when we hear and meet someone from Foothill Bible Church, we instantly smile and want to hug them uh, because of art and Kim and taking them to Israel a long time ago and then three years together in the training center because of Micah and Audrey and just there's the sweet relationship we've built with them over the time and then to cap it off you took a piece of us by hiring Josh Powell and Michelle and uh, that is painful and we still miss them and uh, I'm personally offended that he hasn't come up and hugged me today so <laughs> I'll get over it later, and there he is. Hi, Josh. We miss you guys. So uh, it is a joy and delight to be here. We love the church. The, our leadership has been praying for Owen, and uh, it is uh, just a, a sad what's gone on with him, and yet so good to know that we can trust in a sovereign Lord who rules and cares overall and especially loves uh, his children. Uh, so... With that said, uh, Art mentioned it. We have, my wife and I, Beth, have three kids. Uh, they are two girls and a boy, uh, Abby, who's 14, Izzy, who's 11, LJ, who is eight, each unique, wonderful, and, and uh, terrifying in their own rights. And uh, when they were little, we'd play this little game uh, that I like to call Would You Rather. Uh, and it was a way to figure out what they liked. So I'd say, would you rather have chocolate milk or plain milk for breakfast, right? And then they'd have to choose one. Would you rather have chocolate milk or orange juice, right? We'd go down the choices and keep whittling to figure out what their likes and dislikes were. Would you rather, you know, what kind of vegetables would you rather have? That was a great game because they didn't like any of the choices. <laughs> Uh, we learned out of pancakes, French toast, and waffles, the three breakfast classics, uh, that nobody had the same favorite, but all of them chose pancakes as number two. So that therefore, we do a lot of pancakes now because we learn things about our family. Uh, we learned who hated broccoli the most uh, so that we knew what, what it would uh, take to get them to eat it. And so I thought it'd be fun to start a little bit of a would you rather game this morning just to get a little feel for you. So uh, would you rather sleep in or get up early? Okay, sleep in, who, who's, who's in? All right. Would you rather get up early? Would you rather not play this game? No, I'm kidding. Uh, okay. Would you rather, this is close to my heart, have pizza or a hamburger for lunch? Pizza? These are my people. All right, hamburger? It's fine. There's a habit down the street. I might see you there. I won't ask about naps during the day because I don't want you to personally divulge too much. Like there's, there's fun things you can learn about people just figuring out their preferences, right? If we, if we did this long enough, you would learn, I love the Falcons in football. I love the Braves in baseball. Clearly, I grew up in Georgia. Uh, pizza is my favorite food. You've already figured that out. I eat Smarties for candy. It's my favorite. I don't know why. It's sugar in its purest form, I think, something like that. Everybody has preferences. You, you have them. I have them. The person in front of you has them. They show up from the time you wake up in the morning. Do I start my morning with coffee or a shower? Which one is going to wake me up quicker? Right? Am I getting dressed with black 
or colorful clothes? Am I going to be at church on time or, no, I won't say that. Uh, will I go home for lunch today or go out, right? We're making choices all through the day. And in this current age, social media helps us to know not just our own preferences, but the preferences of everyone around us who we're even loosely connected with. We can see what they preferred to eat for breakfast. We can see whether they thought their outfit was good or not, right? Like all kinds of things are being pushed on us, broadcasting our decisions and our preferences to those around us. Uh, preferences are more known throughout the world than ever before. They are collected. They are paid for. They're used to feed you more of things you prefer. Uh, we can now see everybody's and people seem to be, it feels like people are pushing their preferences on others now more than ever, right? The, the questions then come, will you wear a mask? Will you get vaccinated? What will happen and what should happen with our kids and in classrooms? There's so many questions being asked that are genuinely preferences. They're things about which the Bible is not explicit. And we have Christians telling one another what to do and what to think and how to think. There's a reaction that many have against go government overreach. Uh, there's attacks on fundamental personal liberties. There's anxiety about health risks, uh, both from long COVID and from vaccine. And this and more is just constantly pouring into people's hearts. So, so here's our challenge as Christians. Here, here's our challenge. Too many Christians are identified by their preferences. Too many Christians confuse their preferences with their identity, right? You can love Athleta and be vegan. Those don't have to go together. You, you can shoot guns. You can exercise daily. You don't wear a mask. You do homeschool. Wh whatever those decisions you make are totally fine. But is that what you're known for? Is that what people identify with you foremost for being? And I want to look today at God's word as it relates to preferences. Christ talks about preferences and how we should view preferences. So we're going to do that today. And that whole conversation starts with, what are you known for? What do people identify you with? What are you associated with? What defines your identity? Are you known for being Mexican or Republican or a teacher or a COVID survivor or an American or an anti-vaxxer or mom or dad? Any of those things, they're, they're wrong. You are, first and foremost, a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. That should be your top level, most broadly known identity. If I ask your classmates, your coworkers, your family, your kids, what defines you? What, what are they about? What are they most excited about? What do you hear them talk about the most? What would they say? Right? Is your identity defined by your preferences or are you known for your affection for Jesus Christ? That, that's the fundamental question. If you want to talk about Christ's heart for preferences, it comes down to really ultimately, and I'm giving away the whole thing here, it's a question about identity, 
right? Jesus wants you to get your eyes off of others and onto your own walk and onto pursuing him. He wants you to be focused on your own salvation and sanctification, not really worried about what others are doing, even as it relates to masks and vaccines. And it seems like, especially in our current age, that there are people, what I can say is in our church, there are some people who are very concerned, seem to be very concerned about what other people are doing. And I would bet that that's true here. They notice who is doing what with whom. They ask why you're not doing what they are. Uh, There's almost like this unspoken competition. And Jesus wants us as Christians to be concerned foremost just about our own walks. Not so much about what other people are doing, but about what your own relationship to him is. He wants you to be as much like him as you possibly can be. To treat others with grace, right? Believing the best about them, speaking kindly, to be concerned foremost as much as you can be to be like him. John 1.14 describes him beautifully. It says, the word became flesh, it dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that ending description of who Jesus is, one who is full of grace and truth, is critical to retain for us. That is exactly the tension we want to hold as believers. We want to be full of grace and we want to be full of truth. We don't want to ignore the truth and say, God doesn't care about how you live. That's not true. We don't want to be, forget the grace we know and condemn people over something trivial about which the Bible doesn't say. So let's dig in to where Jesus talks about preferences. This is Matthew 7. Open up your Bibles there. Let me show you how Jesus communicates this to his disciples. Matthew 7, if you haven't been there in a little while, this is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. He is describing what it looks like to be a disciple of his, a follower of his, not legalistically following the law, but seeking the kingdom of God first with all of your heart. And he's described in chapter 6, right before this, here's what it looks like not to be anxious about money or about your needs or your life, but instead to trust God. And then he moves into chapter 7 to talk about our relationships with one another. So he moves from the anxieties of life to our relationships with others. And and he, he says something, he asks something that nobody is talking about right now. He asks, how do you respond to others who approach life different than you? How do you respond and treat and engage with people who have really different views than you? That, that's what we get here. And, and just to address the elephant in the room, right, we'll, we'll do that. Let me just talk specifically about what that is right now, and then we'll dig into the passage. Because here's the thing in all of our minds and our hearts. We are living, honestly, during one of the craziest times in the modern era, right? Like, it is a weird, crazy time. We have... COVID that's made family and friends sick. It's people in our church who are in the hospital. There's people I'm sure you know and I do that have died from COVID. Mass guidance has fluctuated. Uh, vaccines have been weaponized, not in a literal sense, but metaphorically. Uh, local, state, federal governments have used emergency mandates at an unwarranted time, losing trust in the process. People in our church, and I'm guessing in yours, have been threatened with job loss uh, if they remain unvaccinated. If you have parents with kids in school, you know the last year was brutal. And you're looking at this year and you're not thrilled about what's coming. 
Uh, and we see ever-changing guidance on kids. We see recently LA County mandating vaccines for students. And there's a recall vote Tuesday. This is a crazy time. I want to tell you how to vote. All right. Uh, don't think that's allowed. This is a crazy time. And the hard reality is that the Bible says nothing about whether you should accept changing requirements for your job or your school. It doesn't say anything about whether you should homeschool your kids. It doesn't tell you whether you should or should not wear a mask at Lowe's. Like it gives you no guidance in these matters that are true and real that we're having to face. But it does give us a lot of instruction that revolve around it, right? It says you need to provide for your family. It says that you need to obey, you must obey God, and you must obey your, go your government if it's not in conflict with God. It says you must, it says, this is amazing, that God has appointed the day and the moment of your death, no matter whether that is from the vaccine or COVID or cancer or old age, that you will not die a moment before God intends. We, we can be clear that the vaccine is not the mark of the beast because Revelation 13 says that's on your foreheads and it's on their hands. And I don't think that's where they're injecting it, right? So, so let's be clear, it's not that. A vaccine's not sin, neither is a mask. And they, they can be wise, their preferences. Just like veganism, and gun ownership and educational choices. A preference is an issue about which the Bible is silent. It gives no command. And it's about preferences that Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples here in Matthew chapter seven, verse one. So let's look at it here. Here's what he says. Do not judge so you will not be judged. This is Matthew chapter seven, verse one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse six, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they'll trample them under your, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. A weird ending, we'll talk about it. In short, here's what Jesus is saying, and then we'll break it down and, and see how it becomes real. In short, Jesus is saying, you should be more concerned with your issues than with what other people are doing. How, how do we deal with preferences? We deal with our own conscience and decisions before the Lord, and we recognize that every person is gonna to answer to God on their own. And the focus of the Sermon on the Mount in total, the whole verse, chapters five through seven, is on the heart. It's on Christ's desire for you to be more focused on yourself than on everybody else around you or the world around you. And the first two verses here in chapter seven just warn against that judgmental attitude. Jesus says the disciple of Christ will be gracious towards others. Don't judge so that you won't be judged, right? It basically says, how do you respond to the 17-year-old barista who tells you to wear a mask, right? Are you going to judge them or are you going to respond with grace? 
He's going after the heart, asking how do you feel when someone does something that you think is foolish or even sinful? Do you judge them? In your heart, do you judge them? Maybe you think that those kids are like that, those teenagers are like that because of the schooling choices their parents made. Or you question the wisdom, sanity, salvation of a person who votes for a different politician than you. Or you look at the car somebody else drives and you think less of that person because of it's, it's below what you think they should or it's too fancy, either way. Maybe you assume a person's decision not to be vaccinated is rooted in fear and not unloving towards others. Jesus here warns against a judgmental heart, no matter the issue, to judge others. He is this, the type of heart that's manifest when you're struggling with some of these preferences. Preferences have to do with what's wise in the world. These are not life and death. These are not clear Bible issues. They involved your decision on matters where Scripture is silent. According to your conscience, according to Romans chapter 14, they can be sinned to you, but they're not things that the Bible explicitly says is good or bad. Paul takes what Jesus says here in, Ro in Matthew chapter 7 and he applies it in Romans 14. So keep your, keep your finger here in Matthew 7. Turn over to Romans chapter 14. I just want to see you see him apply the exact same thing. Because here he's taking what Jesus says Paul is in Romans 14 and he applies it to the issue in Corinth, or sorry, the issue in Rome, which is uh, what do we do about vegetarians? Now, that, that's overly simplistic. It was meat sacrificed to idols. That was the real issue. There's meat available to buy, to buy that's been sacrificed to idols. It's cheaper to buy. And they're saying, well, idols aren't real. We can eat this. And they're saying, no, that's idolatry. You shouldn't eat this. Which is right? Or can a Christian buy it? Is it sinful to eat it? That's the debate. And Romans chapter 14, he says, here's his response, applying what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat. The one who doesn't eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Again, mirroring Jesus' words. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord's able to make him stand. Again, he's just saying the exact same thing Jesus did. Listen, watch your heart. Don't judge others. They will stand before God to give an account. You pay attention to you. Don't judge other believers for positions and preferences that are unlike yours. So if the core, the center of your identity is Jesus Christ, that is what matters the most, right? You can accept and love people who have radically different positions than you because Jesus and the Father accepted and loved you when you were entirely in a different position than you are today. Right? His love for you, his embrace of you, his grace towards you was not because you were already conforming to what he thought and, and knows is right. You were not fully conformed to God's perfect will when you were saved. 
you are positionally saved, but you're on a radically different page in some ways, and we're all still in the process of growing to be like Jesus Christ, and yet we all know the grace and love and mercy and kindness through Jesus, right? You cannot then remove all of that grace that you've experienced from the Lord in your dealings with other people. You, you can't be harsh with them if you know that love personally from Jesus Christ. That, that's the point here. God has accepted them, so who are you to judge? Which means maybe uh, older men need to be gracious towards hairstyles, right? Younger women might need to be gracious towards clothing styles of older women, right? Like there's all kinds of things here. I laugh at the gluten-free aisle, but I probably shouldn't. So there's gluten-free people who I deeply love, despite their lack of gluten. I'm very pro-gluten. All right. You need to be gracious around everybody. We make assumptions about people, right? That there are terrified people who think by someone not wearing a mask, you're trying to kill them. You want to be gracious. You want to be loving. When a restaurant requires a vaccination card in order for service, you don't, you don't treat the employees or the owner poorly. You don't be aggressive. You don't get angry. You don't judge people who feel differently than you shouldn't affect your relationships with family, with friends especially, right? Because how you feel about the pandemic and the responses to it, that's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is your relationship to Jesus Christ and the relationship of others around you to Jesus Christ. That is what must define us. That, that's what has to drive us to, to guide our thinking in our hearts. Now, we all make decisions about life that are different than others around us. You might really value the Samsung Galaxy smartphone that came free with your plan, you know, five years ago, and you think people are stupid who upgrade their phones. I'm sorry for saying stupid. I just realized they're kids in here. I did it twice. So <laughs> foolish, right? Who are foolish for upgrading their phones. Or, or you might be somebody who buys your cars used and think it's foolish for somebody to ever buy one new. Or who looks down at people who buy luxury brands when you think a Honda is the pinnacle of cars. Or maybe you buy at Marshalls and you don't understand Lululemon. Or you shop at Trader Joe's and you don't understand Winco. Like there, there's all these choices that are preferences that we make and throughout life we, we mystify. Like my hunch, you have feelings about Walmart and the people who shop there. They could be my family and they could be not family, right? Like you feel different ways about this. These are preferences and our hearts are just naturally bent to judge, to, to say like me, not like me, in, out, right, wrong. When we do this, we are playing the role of God. We're playing the role of God. In that moment, you are believing that you know what is best for that person, that you know what the decision they should make in their life. You have all the facts, and you believe that their action is worthy of condemnation 
or commendation, right? Of praise or, or wrongness, right? You're saying you know their heart. You know probably they're not walking in the spirit in the decision they made, but in the flesh. You're judging their actions to be out of line with God's will and therefore sinful and worthy of contempt. That's not really what anyone would say out loud, but that's what's going through our hearts when we judge people. We're playing the role of God. It's how we feel at the core, and those feelings are wrong and they're destru- destructive. If you're still in Romans 14, you'll see verse 10. He says this, right? Verse 10, Romans 14. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There will come a day when you will stand before God and give an account. You will not be judging others. You will be judged. It is usurping, taking over the role of God when you pretend to know the hearts and motives of others, which is the action of judging. And so to come full circle back to Matthew where we started, what he says in verses 1 and 2 is, you will be judged in the same way that you judge others. How you treat others with different preferences than you is going to be your standard of measure on that day. If you judge others strictly and without grace, then you will be judged in the same way. That's terrifying. That should not be true of us. We should be gracious to others. And so when we see somebody with a different conviction, Jesus then goes on to say, second thing, that we should be, our priorities to be focused mainly on our own walk. Be focused mainly on your own walk. Look back, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. He says right there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Hopefully you're still there in the Bible. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the logs in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now he uses this word picture to easily convey the idea, right? Like you get this, I, I, I think this is helpful, right? You've got this, and you're saying, let me help you with this. What's the problem here? Right? Very easy to see. Is he mistaken that the speck exists? Does this exist? Yeah, to all appearances in the text, it looks like it's there. Did the guy misdiagnose that there's a speck? No. He's dead right that there's a speck. Right? There, there's something there. Should it be removed? Is Jesus saying, don't ignore it? What, what, what's the problem here? problem is the dude's focus is wrong, right? He, he's got his eyes on the wrong thing. To fight a judgmental heart, to avoid making preferences, gospel issues, he says, just be focused on your walk. Be focused on the issues that are evident, most evident around you. In Romans 14, you don't have to turn back there, but he says, this, Paul says the same thing. He says, don't thus judge let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way, 
right? And then he goes through, he describes how all food is clean, but sometimes your food choices can cause other people to stumble. Here's the problem. Most Christians in America think that their liberties, their freedoms, their preference areas that the Bible doesn't address are given to them for their own pleasure and their own enjoyment. The reason why you have freedom to do things that the Bible says or you know, doesn't address is so that you can enjoy it, right? You read Romans 14, 14, nothing's unclean in itself, and you think, great, I can go to a bar. I can watch an R movie. I can cheer for the Raiders. Like, whatever that choice is, they're all the same. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> God didn't give you those liberties for you to simply enjoy yourself. That, like that's the, the wrong understanding of God's word that most people don't get at all. God didn't give you liberties. This is the argument of, Rome, sorry, 1 Corinthians 10 through 13, Romans 14 and 15, both passages on this, they say the same thing. God didn't give you liberties for your own pleasure. He gave them to you. <laughs> he gave them to you for the purpose of evangelism and to edify others so that you can engage with others who have different preferences without violating your own conscience. Your liberty in Christ is so you can win others to Christ, which means sometimes you use those liberties and sometimes you deny those liberties. Sometimes you, you feel like, you know what, I'm gonna go into the bar to pursue this guy, not advocating that, just saying it's not contrary to the word. Sometimes I'm going to wear this mask. Sometimes I'm not going to wear this mask. I want to win people to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to do everything I can that is not in violation of God's word to win people to Christ. The goal of these liberties is not for my own pleasure. The goal is evangelism and edification. Our freedoms in Christ are to be spent on others and not on ourselves. You act with grace towards believers with different convictions than we have. You focus on your own walk, your own areas for growth, rather than the areas that you want somebody else to change in, right? Because you don't usually see the, th the big areas in their life. A lot of times we, we miss that. You think about the picture Jesus gave, Matthew chapter 7, right? The guy with the plank, the guy with the speck. The guy with the plank, what does he need to work on? It's this. The guy with the speck, we actually don't know if he needs to work on the speck. Like that's not the point of the text. There could be a plank coming out of his rear end. Like we don't know what else is going on with that guy. We just know that the guy with the plank is focused on the wrong thing. And, and that's the point here, right? The, the text doesn't tell us the speck is the priority be, to be removed. Here's what happens when you are attentive to the sins of others more than the sins of your own heart. When your concern is primarily about others and helping them deal with their sins, again, what you're doing, you're playing the role of God. You're saying, I know where you need to change in your life and I'm gonna help you get there. You, you say, I know which sins in your life are the most destructive and the most God dishonoring, and I have the ability and the means to see them removed. So I'm, I'm gonna tell you what to do. That, that again is the role of God. It may be that you live with the person and you see the patterns and you're actually right. And it may be that you spend a couple hours with them and you're just really annoyed by them because maybe they're the same as yours. 
And it could just be that you ran into them at the grocery store and it just sticks in your craw the thing that they did. Whatever the case, your focus is on them and not on yourself. You're confident that the thing you're bothered by is the biggest issue in their life. It's the thing that has to change. It's the one God wants them to deal with and sort out. And what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 is you got it wrong. Your responsibility before the Lord is not them, it's you. It's your heart, it's your walk. So how do you respond to people with different preferences than you? You love them, you show grace to them, and you focus your attention not on those differences, but back on yourself and at what you need to do in order to ultimately glorify Jesus Christ. You can have a different philosophy of education than another mom. You can love somebody with a nose ring, even though you don't think they're, they're disgusting and distracting, right? Or beautiful or whatever. You, you, can, you can have a family member who's died from COVID and be gracious to people who you think aren't taking it seriously enough. You can see someone wearing a mask while on a Zoom call and just smile, right? <laughs> Without judging or even asking. Now, you know, <laughs> these are preferences. We wanna have grace for people who are unlike us. We wanna be focused on our pursuit of Christ. And then the third, the third principle that Jesus lays out here in Matthew 7, is he says, don't be a fool. Curious what got filled in there. I hope it says fool. Yeah. I tried to clean this up because I knew there were kids here. All right. Hopefully they can't read. So don't be a fool. That's again just either one, a summary of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Look, look there, Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will mangle them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, let's be honest. You read this, and there's just like this record scratch that goes in your head, right? It feels this, like he's suddenly switched to Proverbs. There's this hard left turn, and he just goes off the rails entirely. Don't give what's holy to dogs. Don't throw pearls before swine. The connection to us isn't as obvious as I think it would have been to his original audience. Because verses 1 to 5, what he's saying, he says your focus should be on yourself and your own walk rather than judging people who are different than you. And now people have taken this, that what he says here, to say, well, we can't criticize anyone. We, we can't ever say anything that anyone else is doing. We have to tolerate everything. We can't even evaluate the actions or the teachings of someone else, right? You, you've heard people say this, you know, judge not lest you be judged. We can't say a word. You're not allowed to have an opinion about someone else's sin. And when that idea is embraced, that we have to stay silent about everything, sin in the church flourishes. That, that's not what he means, right? Corinth is an example of this. Paul, Paul addresses them. He, they're trying to just show love and show love. And so they're saying, isn't it great? We uh, take in this brother who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Like, no, that's not great. But they think it is. The, the world calls it tolerance. And the world would say we need to be tolerant of one another. They're, they're taking this principle of judge not lest you be judged. And they're removing it out of its context 
They're exaggerating it and say, we just have to embrace everything. And verse six is the don't be a fool response to unbridled tolerance, to just full acceptance of everything. That's why he says, don't give what's holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine or they're going to turn and trample it and tear you to pieces. So let me ask you some really simple, obvious questions. Is he giving animal care instructions? No. Okay. So he's not talking about dogs and pigs. Do you think he's probably then referring to a certain kind of person who would fall into the category of a dog or pig? Yes. Yeah. Does he define what is holy? What are pearls? No. Most likely what's understood here is they would have referred probably uh, just culturally to holy meat that had been offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. Some of that meat would have been burnt up and then taken home to the priest's home. And he's saying like, don't give to a dog something that's been dedicated to the Lord. That, that would be the nut of it. Don't give something meant to serve God to people who are, act like dogs. Don't give something of high value to people who act like pigs. That, that, that's the rough point here. People debate, is he talking about the gospel? Is he describing the grace of overlooking differences? Here, here's what I'd say. How do you know who's a dog? <laughs> how, how do you know what is holy? How can you recognize somebody who acts like swine? How can you do something, determine if something has great value? It's discernment. Like the core thing he's advocating, discernment. Be discerning. Judge and determine what's right. Be discerning. The first five verses, he deals with the error, really, of the Pharisees, of being too harsh, too critical in your judgments. And now at the end, what he's saying is, but there is a place for judgment. There is a place to no longer be tolerant. We don't just tolerate everyone and everything. And that, that's the point here. When you share the gospel, you don't say, and you're fine. Right? You say, you are a sinner. You are utterly helpless and condemned before God. You have no hope. You will stand before him and be judged. And there you will have no answer. You can't be good enough. Your only hope is in one who was perfectly good. Who died the death and paid the price that you never could. So put your hope in Jesus Christ. You're, you're helpless without him. Right, like th there's a place to say truths, hard truths. When you're considering life choices, you have to declare when something is sinful and wrong or even just foolish and deadly, right? You have to confront defiant sin, patterns of sin. You have to recognize when you're standing before a pig. That, that's the point. We are called to be gracious. We're called to be focused on our own walk more than, the lives, uh, more than the lives of those around us. But that doesn't mean you act like a fool. It doesn't mean you overlook patterns of sin in lives of others. It doesn't mean that you take your spouse's affection for pornography and call it a preference, right? Like, no, that's really clear in the word. Don't take what's holy and give it to the dogs. You, you don't let issues of anger, whether in kids or adults, go unaddressed. You don't allow your in-laws' Mormonism to confuse what true salvation is. 
You don't let some crazy book that some guy on the street or at work gave you that tells you how everybody misunderstood Jesus until now and let that change your thinking about what the word says. What happens if you don't confront obvious sin? What happens if you don't address distortions to the gospel? The end of verse six, they trample your grace under their feet and they turn and tear you to pieces. So he says, don't, don't be a fool, right? Don't be so full of grace that you lack truth. Have discernment. Now at a church like FBC, this FBC, I have an FBC, it's not this FBC, but we mean, we always talk FBC, it's great. A church that's well taught like FBC, we can become so focused on what's true that we become hypercritical of others and we lack grace and charity for others. We can become so concerned with error around us that we lose our love for people, so fixated on what's true that we utterly fail to be kind and generous and gracious to others. So like Jesus, we want to, to hold both of those things equal and in equal measure, to be full of grace, to be full of truth. When dealing with preferences, we want discernment. Right? We, we want that discernment that he talks about, to know when to speak up. That's what we're praying for, to be generously gracious, not quick to judge. So if you are driving down the freeway, seeing someone driving solo in a car with a mask, you don't judge them, even if it's a coworker. You, you're, you're talking to a, an extended family member who annoys you. Everyone's got a crazy uncle, right? You, you don't judge them. You, you extend grace. You remember, I have been forgiven of so much more than the little sins and annoyances I'm seeing in this person. I know so much more grace in my life. How can I not be gracious to them? That's, that's the principle here. When we're focused mainly on our walks, it keeps our eyes on the cross and the one person, the Lord, who we will answer to. So let's apply these truths to the vaccine, to the elephant, to, to COVID. Should you get the vaccine? And the answer is, it's up to you. There, there's no right or wrong in the Bible. There, there's no, yes, it's sin, no, it's not. I am a doctor, it's the wrong kind to help you in this. So you should talk to a real doctor, right? I have the, the theology doctor, that is like the most useless doctor you can get when it comes to medical issues. You don't want me on a plane uh, with you in distress. Unless you're going to die, in which case I'm great. <laughs> but other than that, not so much. Yeah. So, so should you get the vaccine? You should talk to a medical doctor, right? Because they, they took an oath to serve you in your best interests and to keep you healthy. They, he's not depending on Facebook or news reports for his information. He knows you. He's sworn to act in your best interest. So talk to him, make a choice, and then trust the Lord, right? Churches, pastors aren't called to know scientific research. You wouldn't want us to because a new study came out showing hot dogs take 36 minutes off every day of your life. Should we ban hot dogs? Maybe we eat more of them so that we can yeah, go to see Jesus sooner. I don't even know how to work that out. But I do know I have zero authority to tell you whether you should eat a hot dog, right? 
I can tell you this type. Never mind, Hebrew National. All right. <laughs> Here's what we can say. You should, as a believer, get a shot and move on with your life. Option one. Option two, choose to skip the vaccine and embrace the consequences uh, without grumbling, whining, or protesting. Do you know why I say that? Because that part is in the Bible, right? That was in Psalm 106 today. Like it was in what Taylor read. Part of Israel's condemnation, you see this in 1 Corinthians 10, is for grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2, like over and over, it says, don't grumble or complain. Don't whine or protest. So if you suffer for the choice you make on a preference, this is not persecution. This is you living according to your conscience over a preference. Embrace it. Don't grumble or complain, right? You are welcome. This would be two, option 2B two to file a religious exemption clause. Our nation has shown that they're not very pro, pro-religious ex- religion in general. Uh, they don't really care about personal beliefs when they violate societal norms anymore. But whatever decision you make, don't make it your identity, Right? That, that's the core of, of Jesus' heart on preferences. No matter what the preference is, it is not what defines you as a Christian. Your relationship, your walk with him should be the biggest thing that you're known for. It shouldn't be anything else. Our preferences can't define us. We want our identity to be that of Jesus Christ. 500 years ago, almost 500 years ago, the bubonic plague was raging throughout Germany during the time of Luther. And uh, believers were torn about a similar situation. They were torn about what to do. Some people were fleeing the towns where the plague was developing. Some people were staying behind to care for the sick and the dying. And and there was, in many ways, really similar strife and division in the church to what we see across our nation today. And Luther wrote a small pamphlet called Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. Very clear title. And and basically, he gives just a, a really good biblical instruction, practical advice, In his conclusion, there's no right or wrong response. It is a preference. It is a wisdom issue. And so he says, believers should not be overconfident and foolish if they choose to stay, nor if they go, should they act as though fearful of death. Because we don't need to be. Right? Only let us love one another. And that's our call as believers. That's our heart as Christians. That represents Christ's heart to us. To be gracious, to be discerning, to give grace towards others, and to be known for our deep affection and love for Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, that is our prayer for the church. The church here at Foothill, my home church, church, the true church around the world. Lord, there is so much tearing apart our world today. And we want your your son to return soon. It is hard. The choices put before us, the pain and suffering we see around us, the fear and terror we see around us of some. And yet, Lord, we also see great opportunity for gospel conversations to turn the conversation from what's going on in the world to ultimate matters about life and death 
and eternity. You have given us a hope that we don't deserve. You've given us a confidence to face the fears and terrors of this day without dread all through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that he would shine brightly at Foothill Bible Church through the ministry of the church and even more through the people of the church as they live out their walk and their profession in the world around them. Lord, help us to live the truth with love and grace and truth. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.